Hello and welcome everyone. I'm Jack English and this is City Hall Stories. These are conversations with local government leaders who are imagining, designing and creating our future societies. Aspirational governance is the most effective way to build a healthier future. And this podcast is built to be a source of inspiration for anyone who looks out their window and says, let's do better. I hope the incredible humans you'll hear from deliver that inspiration. Josh Burks is a bit of an economic development star. Overseeing one of the USA's fastest growing cities, Fort Collins, Colorado, Josh and his team have led a $330 million redevelopment project, retained major corporate headquarters, and were selected as one of Bloomberg's champion cities in supporting sustainable development. While we often think of local government as serving the citizens, it's often overlooked that every city has a business community requiring support and advocacy. Today, Josh and I go deep on how to create a vibrant local economy, the necessary tension between business and citizen interests, plus the unique code of ethics that binds Coloradan cities. Please enjoy this conversation with Josh Burks. Colorado's growth and development has been outstripping almost every other area in the past decade, so it's great to be able to talk over what's happening and what some of the impacts are on the ground. Starting with your role, Josh, even to seasoned local government professionals, the economic development director role can seem like a bit of a dark art. It's obviously a crucial position, but if you ask me to explain your day-to-day, I would struggle. So what is it that you actually do? (laughs) It's a great question. Um, Yeah, I think I can see how to an outsider it might seem a bit of a dark art what we do. It's actually quite simple. Economic development or economic health, as we like to say here in Fort Collins, is fundamentally just about supporting businesses and helping them to be successful, whether that's navigating some city or municipal process, looking for new real estate so that they can expand their business, connecting them to others in our community, supporting entrepreneurs, or you know helping with redevelopment. I think all of those things fundamentally come back to one thing, which is we want businesses to be successful in our community, and we're going to lean in and try to help them be successful, whatever that might look like. So did you work your way up through the ranks at Fort Collins? Did you fly in with a Master's of Public Administration? How did you even get to become the Director of Economic Health? Well, I think one of the reasons that the economic health and economic development field is sort of a little bit misunderstood is because it's not a profession that has a very strong or clear path to it. It's it's not something you major in in university, right? It's uh, folks of all all different backgrounds can actually end up in the profession. So my own path was through a master's in urban and regional planning from Portland State University, getting about halfway through that program and realizing I didn't want to spend my day looking at mylars and reviewing you know, what shrubs went where in individual plans, but actually wanted to be more engaged in the space between the public and private sectors. So I actually got my start doing consulting with a firm down in Denver called Economic and Planning Systems. That's, their specialty was that kind of intersection between the two sides of, of the conversation by providing financial analysis, um, market analysis, and basically support of public-private partnerships. And for me, this, the, the path that got me to Fort Collins was they were one of my clients as a consultant. And I was looking to make a change about the same time that my first daughter was born and my wife decided she wanted to stay at home. And I wanted to get off the road be, and not be a consultant anymore. And the city of Fort Collins had a position available. At the time, it was called Economic Advisor uh, with an, uh, an O-R, not an E-R. I don't understand why they chose that spelling, but 
it was fun. And I applied for the position and ended up being selected, uh, I think in part because of my past experience with the city. I worked under the then CFO, Mike Freeman, for about three years before he decided to move on. And it was at that time that I was given the opportunity to become the director of the city's economic health office. At the time, it was myself and one other person working half time. And I was excited for the opportunity. And I've spent the last nearly decade building the office up to the team that it is now including myself there are six of us professionals working within the economic health office so you were confused over the difference between er and or and potentially some people coming into the role might be confused the difference between development and economic health can you lay that yes yeah absolutely there are certain communities ours happens to be one where talking and using certain words in our vernacular calls up negative connotations. And development is one of those words in Fort Collins. We're a community that is wanting to be intentional about the way we grow and manage that growth. And so development was never really a concept that fit Fort Collins. And so we were looking for a different way to talk about what our office does and how the city engages in this space. And we landed on economic health because if you look at a definition of health, right, it's about having a quality of of vibrancy and basically sustainability. And so that's really what we're trying to associate with talking about economic health as opposed to economic development. We think it helps us keep our eyes on the long-term horizon which for us is really the outcome that we're looking for. Short-term economic gain can be very cyclical. And so we're trying to create more of a sustained economic you know, sense of prosperity and vibrancy in our community. Economic health also means that we're looking at the question from a slightly different vantage point. Not all jobs are created in our minds. And what we're trying to do is create opportunities that really do span the uh, social economic spectrum, uh, and are also, you know, more focused on creating the ability for folks to, you know, live, play, work inside of Fort Collins. We've lately been talking about it. We want Fort Collins to be a place that businesses can start, sustain, and sort of renew themselves. We know that economy, the economy, has cycles, and sometimes those cycles will result in. Uh, you know, businesses having to go out of business because they're no longer aligned with the market. It's our hope that, you know, our businesses here in Fort Collins can kind of weather those cycles by being able to constantly renew themselves. I think that also translates to our work in talent development, where we want individuals to be able to start, sustain, and renew their careers here in the same way. And so while economic health was born out of a need to find a way to talk about what it is we do, that fit with our community values, I think it's also opened up a whole new horizon in terms of what we focus on. So when we're thinking about long term, you know, potentially over the span of 20 plus years, how does that translate into the types of businesses that you're looking to attract to Fort Collins? Is it just the biggest logos or is there some other rubric or metric that you're going by? Yeah, no, thank you for that question. I think that there are sort of, in my mind, two predominant ways to approach this work. One I like to call the hunting and gathering approach to economic development. And and it fits in with what your question sort of alluded to, which is it's about getting the biggest logos or, or, or landing, you know, the biggest win for your community and trying to bring big companies in from outside. You know, I think that can lead to success, but I think it's also often short-term success. 
because many times those big logos um, are in your community only for a short time before somebody else recruits them into their own community. So we, I think, in Fort Collins are more interested in what I like to call an agrarian approach to economic development. And again, it fits with the response I gave earlier to the question about the difference between development and health. And it's that we're really trying to work with the strengths and the assets that we already have here in Fort Collins and grow and nurture those the same way you might, you know, grow and nurture a crop. And in that is what yields for us economic outcomes. So it's about looking at the knowledge, skills, and abilities of the talent that's already in Fort Collins and seeing how that can support new industries or new business formation. And it's looking at our existing industries and where they are strong, uh, where they have growth opportunities, and how they can continue to be relevant in the marketplace kind of going back to that concept of being able to help businesses start, you know, sustain and renew here in our community. So as we look toward companies and industries that are best suited for Fort Collins moving forward, do you look back at what Fort Collins has been really successful at in the past and try and stretch that out in the future? Or are you working from kind of a vision zero, an aspirational goal as to what you see Fort Collins looking like in the future in terms of what you're looking to attract here now in the short and medium term? You know, I think that what what comes to mind with that question is is fundamentally getting at a sense of like how do you create resiliency in an economy? And for me, resiliency comes from both strength and diversity. And so I often think about strength as kind of being that look at where we have had success and where we are currently having success. And diversity really comes from being ambitious and chasing new opportunities. So I suppose that's a long-winded way of saying it's it's a both and, not an either or. And so it's important to keep working with those industries in our community that have historically been very strong. And for Fort Collins, that's the high-tech industry, uh, specifically you know HP, Broadcom, Intel, AMD, Microsoft. We have significant satellite offices by all of those employers, and they're the big logos as well, right, that we talked about a little bit before. And they came to Fort Collins primarily because of the talent uh, and the ability to attract and retain talent, which goes into the, you know, sort of livability of our community and and it's just general attractiveness in terms of climate and other aspects. At the same time that we're, you know, trying to help maintain those businesses and keep them successful – you know, we're also looking at the talent that feeds those same industries as being a source of new software development and new companies that come out of the folks that were attracted to this community. And software development and high tech is also becoming instrumental to other industries that fit well with Fort Collins value set. You know, Fort Collins is a community that's committed to being um, carbon neutral by 2050. And so the clean energy industry, for instance, is an important one to us. Well, a big part of clean energy is software to manage the grid, software to help management of renewable resources, and technology that can help with you know, everything from charging stations to individual homes. And so it's easy for us to look at that historic strength and find new and ambitious ways to apply it into new industry. So I think that 
for a community to really be resilient, it needs to be both looking a little bit in the rearview mirror and continuing to support those industries while also, you know, looking ahead out through the windshield and saying, where do we really want to go? How do we want our economy to grow, not only for prosperity, but also to help us achieve maybe some of our community goals and objectives and really trying to find a way to kind of map between the two things. And for us, you know, talent and understanding knowledge, skills and abilities of our of our local workforce is is one way we're trying to do that mapping. You know, another way we're trying to do that is by working very closely with Colorado State University which is the you know land grant university here in Colorado and also historically you know the agricultural school interesting thing is that it's one of the top 3 vet schools in the states and has a very strong animal oncology program and a lot of that research is now being translated into human oncology and human application and so we have a growing and burgeoning bioscience industry as a result uh, and so that's another way where you can look at sort of your community's heritage and see that it's led to past success, but then also find ways to translate that into sort of where can we be in the future? You know, it was that uh, presence of CSU that that landed us the second largest um, center for disease control, you know, lab outside of Atlanta. And pretty much all vector-borne disease research in the United States is is done here in Fort Collins. You know, that gives us another avenue into growing the bioscience industry as we look forward at different diseases like West Nile and things like that that are becoming more prevalent across the states. So if COVID-22 ends up emerging out of Colorado, we'll know we'll know where to look and where to point the finger. Yeah, that's <laughs> that might be too soon there, my friend. Fair enough. All right. In the past year, remote work's obviously exploded, and I myself have been the beneficiary of that. How does that change the equation from from an economic health or development perspective when there's almost a decoupling of contributing taxpayers and their traditional office base that would essentially, in the old world, quote-unquote, be the hub of that? Does that change the equation at all? Yeah, I think it absolutely does, and I think the thing that my colleagues and I are really trying to wrap our head around is how significantly does it change the equation and in what manner, right? It's the economy, to put it simply, is a multivariate system, right? And what we're talking about here is is one of a number of variables that really kind of help to create economic success in any given community. And I agree, historically, office space has been um, an important part of that equation, you know, the question is, is how is it going to change the equation going forward? I think what it's going to do is it's going to create more opportunity. And in the end, that will ultimately be very positive for both business, industry, and even for office space and office utilization. I've been trying to wrap my own head around this, and, and there's a bunch of different theories, and I'm not yet settled on the one that I like the best or or approaches or perspectives, maybe is a better way to put it. But One of the perspectives sort of views the office space as the place for connection, the place for idea exchange, and that the home will really become the place for doing tactical work, what some might view as productivity. I personally think that both are essential to to high productivity. And so I'm not wholly convinced myself that the office is going to go away. Uh, and that we're going to you know, suddenly all just sit in our homes and do work, 
first of all, that, that only applies to certain industries. It doesn't apply across the entire economy. And two, I think that there is something in this concept of being together to do the brainstorming, to do the idea exchange, to do kind of the the upload of new ideas and thoughts that's still probably going to be best done uh, in some kind of face-to-face setting. I do think that that means that the amount of space that a, that a business needs to lease, if you will, for office space may change. And it may change to be smaller because it's more about informal gathering space and there's not as much private space. You know, another pressure could be that it, it changes to be larger because you know, we go back to more of a trend of large private offices where they can be uh, physically separated from each other in the event that we might have another disease or um, virus, excuse me, like COVID, you know, that spreads and and we want to be able to have physical barriers between each other. I'll sum up by saying, I think it's too early to really know, but it will have some kind of lasting effect. And in some ways, it's going to be kind of exciting to see what that looks like. Totally share the unsurety. You know, some days working from home, it feels almost utopic. And then other days, it can feel quite Orwellian, depending on a range of factors. Changing tech a little bit. Talk us through the Foothills Mall development, where it began, what the results been. Because I think it's probably a situation that a lot of similarly sized communities across the US and, and truly across the globe can empathize with. Um, and, and here in Colorado, it's underscored by a strong dependence of local municipalities on sales tax revenue. I would say between 60 and 70% of uh, any given municipality in Colorado's revenue comes from sales tax. For us, I think it's around that 65% level. So having a vibrant retail environment is very important. So Foothills Mall started back in the 70s when a local developer and, and prominent, you know, kind of founding fa- uh, family of Foothills, or not Foothills, of Fort Collins, decided to develop the center. And it was the Everett family. And it started out as a pretty traditional interior mall uh, anchored by two uh, major department stores. One was Sears. The other was a May DNF store, which is a, a brand that no longer exists and was you know, eventually acquired by Foley's and then later acquired by Macy's. And then in the 80s, they added a second sort of concourse on the backside of the property and added two additional anchors. Uh, was a J.C. Penney's uh, and a Montgomery Ward, which Montgomery Ward had a sort of, if we think about it in in the retail landscape, it had a long life. But if we think about it um, in other sort of timelines, it was a fairly short life as a retailer. And so the 90s was really the heyday for this mall, as it was probably for a lot of um, other similar, you know, interior malls uh, across the United States. I first started working on the mall project around 2004, 2005. And at that point, you know, occupancy within the mall was falling. There was significant vacant spaces. The Montgomery Wards had um, closed due to that particular retailer going bankrupt. And JCPenney's had moved from being located at the mall to an off-mall location, um, a former large box retailer that had gone vacant in town they occupied that particular building you know the four the four main anchors had had dwindled to two and sears was at that time i think had just been bought was part of the kmart sears conglomerate that was really just a real estate company 
um, looking to try to you know maintain the retailer as long as they could to get as much value out of the real estate as possible. And then um, the Foley's had been rebranded as a Macy's and department stores were kind of on the way out. So I was actually a consultant to the city at the time and uh, was brought in to sort of help think through how the city might try to induce the then owner general growth properties to reinvest in the site and try to redevelop it because, you know, it was pretty clear that the the property was in decline. You know, fast forward to 2008 um, and, you know, the, the Great Recession had a significant impact on general growth's portfolio across the entire country. And they ended up, you know, going into bankruptcy and uh, that site never actually went into bankruptcy, but it was part of a portfolio that they kind of created to generate some cash for the, for the, the primary company. And so it was sold off and it was bought by Walton street capital out of Chicago. And they hired Alberta development, which is a local company out of the Denver Metro area to basically do a significant redevelopment of the property. That all happened probably in the, you know, bankruptcy took a couple years to work through. So that probably happened in the 2011-12 timeframe. At that point, I was working for the city. I had had been hired by the city um, in 2009 to come on board and became the director of the Economic Health Office in 2012. And so obviously, this was a big project that I was working on, and we were... um, Redevelopment projects are interesting because they're they're arranged marriages, if you will. Where I'm from, we might call them shotgun weddings, right? So they're you don't get to pick your partner. Uh, the private sector is the owner, and the public sector, you know, is trying to help support redevelopment. And we had in Walton and Alberta, you know, company that was um, capable of doing redevelopment. They'd had some successful projects elsewhere in the country. Uh, And Walton Street is a big uh, real estate investment trust and well capitalized. So we were pretty excited. You know, we did the best we could at the time to try to figure out what the best future for the site was. And it included removing some outdated retail that was at the edge of the property, replacing some of that with major apartments. About 400 units were ultimately created, completely renovating the, the, the main concourse that had been built in the 70s, introducing a lot of natural light and um, neutral colors, and just you know giving it a significant refresh. And then removing um, that back concourse that had been really struggling since both of the anchors had left. And, you know, dealing with Sears, who at the time was still trying to operate as a, as a main department store, but not really um, doing it very successfully and, and ultimately helping them move into uh, discontinuing their operations in town and, and replacing it basically with a Sears appliance store in a much smaller footprint. Of course, that project, as it was under development, was opening, trying to open at a time where we were seeing a rash of major um, retail bankruptcies across the country, largely due to the fact that this kind of what we would call junior anchor, uh, some in the industry might call sort of category killers, um, weren't successful anymore. These were the, you know, um, sports authorities, the linens and things, um, those kinds of retailers. What they were successful at trading at on was low cost, high selection in sort of special you know, special sectors uh, in the retail market. Well, 
the internet, which had been around for, you know, more than a decade at that time, was, you know, starting to have a sort of secondary impact on the marketplace. And Amazon was really beginning to kind of come into its own. And what better than Amazon to provide endless options and low price? The site, you know, had Sports Authority as a major tenant that was going to be kind of the secondary anchor on the interior space, and it went bankrupt. They had a number of major, you know, clothier and sort of accessory stores that were supposed to be going in. Gap had, you know, committed something like 50,000 square feet for three or four of their brands. And then, you know, Gap sort of went through its own financial troubles and, and contracted and had a number of closures. And so all of that kind of took the wind out of the sails right as the project was starting to open. And it opened in 2015. In essence, for the last nine or so years, it's been struggling along trying to fill up the space. 16 months ago, or whatever it, it is now, um, you know, the pandemic hits and decimates you know, retail for a short period of time. I think it is starting to come back. But that was sort of a bit of the nail in the coffin, if you will, for the property. And so where we find ourselves today is that after about $313 million of reinvestment, some portion of which was, you know, supported through what I think is a unique and um, an interesting public financing, you know, solution, uh, the project is sort of back where it started uh, in the 2004, 2005 timeframe, which is it needs to go under, uh, you know, a significant kind of reconceiving, reconceptualization, and and probably another round of significant investment um, to really make it a, a a fully contributing property. That's probably a lot more long-winded sort of history of the project than you wanted, but I think it's it's important to kind of have that context because I think what it does is it underscores just how dynamic the retail industry really is and how difficult it is to be successful when you're dealing with large-scale redevelopment like like the one we're talking about. You know, Foothill sits on just under 70 acres of land, which happens to be just about the same size as um, Old Town and Fort Collins, which is kind of our historic core and is one of the most vibrant parts of our community in terms of entertainment, restaurants, um, and specialty retail. So kind of an interesting juxtaposition when you look at those two side by side. Absolutely. I, uh, I really enjoyed that. Changing tack, you mentioned finding strength and diversity, and let's specifically talk about employees and the staff that you work with. You've mentioned in previous conversations that driving for a more diverse group of staff has had some really special benefits. What have some of those been? Yeah, I think that we've had a lot of success at kind of looking for staff. Again, economic you know, development, economic health is not a profession that that there's like a really clear path to. So that means you can kind of cast your net wide when you're looking, you know, to hire for the team itself. Um, you know, I have I have a woman who works for me, her and her husband owned for over 20 years, two of the most popular sushi restaurants in town. And she's, you know, professionally trained CPA. And she was a little bit of a dark horse candidate when I was doing that hiring, but she quickly emerged in that particular hiring pool as somebody who had real empathy for what it was we were trying to do, support businesses, had lived it. Lived experience was very important in that circumstance and and was basically a go-getter, right? This is a, can be a high-intensity profession. 
you're working, you know, evenings to connect with folks as much as you are during the day. And it's really a relationship game. And, and she had that um, from her time being, you know, a restaurateur in the community. At the same time, I have also, you know, working for me, a woman who, you know, spent 20 years in the budget office in New York City. Uh, and has extremely deep financial analytical capabilities and data analysis capabilities. Uh, and she's an important part of the team as well because she's able to help us analyze where do we have strength, what are the nature, what's the nature of our you know current labor market, if you will, in Fort Collins, and and analyze you know different trends that are going on in. Uh, the community, you know, and I just recently hired during the pandemic a gentleman who's bilingual, ran a restaurant for about 10 years, but after having, you know, had a successful career at HP for 20. So as an individual who's, you know, worked inside of large businesses, run his own business, speak Spanish, you know, frankly, doesn't really need to work, but is doing it because he's passionate about the community. And he's our lead on uh, small business support and minority business support. So having that, you know, diversity of background, I think has really been helpful. My own background, I come from an urban and regional planning background. I often get asked by my colleagues to sort of step in to be the economist in the room. And I often laugh at them and say, you know, I have no formal economic training. I'm just a planner. But it, it's, you know, they're still viewed that way because we've spent, you know, I've spent so much of my career living in the space as have um, the colleagues who work around me. And, and I think that's really what's important is just being able to understand how does business go about making its decisions? Because if you don't have understanding and empathy for that, you're not going to be able to really serve the customer. And in the end, th that's what economic health really is. That's what economic development is, right? It's, it's not a dark art. It's simply providing good customer service. And our customer happens to be the business constituent in our community who are, you know, community members in and of their own right, many of them residents, but their entities themselves, the businesses themselves are also right members of the community. And so that's that's who we serve. Does your work in supporting and even advocating for some of those business interests ever butt up against more resident or citizen-based interest groups or agendas and if so, what's the outcome? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think it's it's one of the interesting aspects of working in this profession is within the municipal organization itself, we're often called to kind of be the the parrot of or the loudspeaker for, you know, the business perspective. So many of our other colleagues are charged to be the same, but for the residents in our community. And so I think my office in particular believes it's part of our job to try to represent well what the business community perspective is when it comes to you know policy conversations that are taking place in the community land use you know zoning choices those kinds of things um, and as professionals you know we try to do it by representing it well um, and sort of checking our own sort of personal beliefs at at the door because we're public servants and in this case we're servants of the business public I think that 
one thing that we have going for us in Fort Collins, other than the fact that we're trying to really view a much longer term perspective of what economic success looks like, is the fact that my office is actually part of the city's sustainability service area. And so the sibling departments that I work with on a day in, day out basis are the environmental services department and the social sustainability department. And so if you step back for a moment and look at that, we have social, environmental, and economic all represented. Uh, That's the triple bottom line that you often hear talked about in the sustainability sort of space. And so we've created that in structure within Fort Collins intentionally to make the optimization of the three working together much more intentional and more persistent in our work. So I get to engage with colleagues that are as, you know, fervent in their duty to sort of speak on behalf of, you know, the homeless population or the low income population uh, and to speak on behalf of our community's goals around climate action and carbon reduction and, you know, our road to zero waste ambition and, you know, healthy homes and other activities like that. And so I think what it does is it allows for each of those voices to sort of be, you know, relatively unfiltered and shared, uh, but thrown all together into a mix so that the policy that comes out of it is well informed by all perspectives. If we think about conflict existing on a spectrum, right, you have at one end false harmony and you have at the other, you know, dangerous <laughs> conflict, physical harm, right? But somewhere in the middle is this threshold where you go from conflict that generates positive tension that results in better outcomes to something that's that's unhealthy. And the reality is if we as individuals aren't trying to kind of get right up to that line, you know, and maybe even just stepping over it, uh, you know, accidentally a couple of times, we're probably not getting the positive benefit that comes out of conflict, whether that be conflict between ideas or conflict between perspectives. And so in the end, I think that's, that's part of our charge. So to get back to your original question, does it ever cause problems, if you will, within the organization or within the community? It does. But that's because sometimes that's just inherent in looking at different, you know, looking at the same thing from different perspectives. In my opinion, it's, there's nothing personal about that. It's, it's not about, you know, the business interest trying to win over the community interest. It's about making sure that both are equally represented so that the conversation has the richness uh, that comes from that healthy conflict, healthy tension, so that we get to the best outcomes. Does sometimes it it maybe not feel that way for everybody that's at the table? Sure. But I think that we can't let that sort of force us to back down because then we start to slide into that space of false harmony because we're losing the perspective that's important to have at the table. Staying on that idea of conflict and harmony, and I really like that idea that you framed there for us, how does that work in relation to some of the neighboring cities that you work with? I recall in a previous conversation, you'd mentioned a code of ethics. Yeah, yeah. It's, um, it would be very common for a you know, region like ours, for myself and you know, the neighboring communities of Loveland and Windsor and Greeley to sort of potentially be at each other's throats, if you will, over the same businesses or potentially the same you know, economic activity. I think that one thing that our region has going for it and the state of Colorado has going for it is 
Many decades ago, we learned that isn't really a way for our communities um, or the state to get ahead. If we're fighting each other over what we already have, then really all we're doing is just moving the chips around at the table. We're not making the pie bigger for anybody. We've, we've used a number of different tactics to really enable and uh, over time lead to significant collaboration. And, and that, I think, is really leading to, again, this longer-term economic sustainability. What we've done is it started first with uh, the Metro Denver Economic Development Corporation sort of encouraging a code of ethics that covered the seven counties that make up the metropolitan area of Denver, as well as the two counties that are our region here in northern Colorado. So a nine-county area all sort of signing on to this code of ethics. And basically what the code of ethics says is we're not going to poach from each other. I'm not going to go into Loveland and start knocking on the doors of their businesses on their main street and say, hey, come to Fort Collins. We're so much better than Loveland. You know, let me cut you a check. Let me do this, that, or the other thing to kind of smooth your way into into becoming a Fort Collins business as opposed to a Loveland business. And the reality is when you look at some of our largest employers, take Woodward, for example, they're a, they're a major, you know, I think about a $2.5 billion company here in Fort Collins. They currently have major facilities in Loveland and Windsor, collectively across the region have right around 1,000 employees. You know, they're a, an international company. Well, their employee base lives all across the region. Right, It doesn't just live in Fort Collins. It lives in Loveland. It lives in Windsor. And folks that work in Loveland you know, live in Fort Collins and vice versa. You know, If I was to sort of be very parochial and say, well, Woodward is a Fort Collins business and, and I'm going to try to own that relationship, it would be to the detriment of the business to be able to operate efficiently because there are different parts of their business that make sense in different parts of our region. And they are the ones best capable of determining, you know, what parts of the business are, are suited where the best and so have positioned themselves that way. And as a result, right, what adding a job in Loveland to the Woodward business that they have there is ultimately good for Fort Collins as well because it's making uh, the roots that, that Woodward is laying deeper and it's generating, uh, you know, stronger outcomes ultimately for the entire region. It's a. I think it's a real logical fallacy to think that the economy even understands what a jurisdictional boundary is in the first place. Right? It it doesn't know that the city line of Fort Collins ends here, and that across the street is Windsor, or or what or Timnith or what have you. Um, the economy is made up of the various actors within it. You know, buying and selling things, uh, working for folks, and you know, earning a wage and it's always going to be bigger than an individual jurisdiction. And I think what we've done in Northern Colorado and in Colorado in general is recognize that and then reinforced it with this code of ethics that says you're not going to poach, you're not going to incentivize, you're not going to market, you're not going to actively work to take business out of another community. And as a result, everybody in my profession across Colorado, we have the same mantra. I want to try to land the business in my community First, if they come to me and are working with me, if I can't do that, I want to land them in my region. And if I can't do that, I want to land them in the state. Because in the end, having it land in one of those three locations still accrues economic benefit to my community. And so 
our code of ethics creates an, a, a way for us to kind of self-police if anybody ever decides to kind of step away from that particular theory. The reality is I think it's been used maybe a small handful of times since it was created 20 or 30 years ago in the Denver metro area. And then we chose a couple of years back in northern Colorado to reinforce it by having a similar version of the code of ethics, but one that is just here for our local region. And that was really just kind of a way to signal to all of our colleagues, as well as the elected officials in the region, that, you know, listen, we feel that working together to make the regional economy better is the best use of our time, not fighting over the businesses that are already here. Because guess what? They're active in all of our communities anyway. So if we're working to support them together, that's ultimately the better uh, outcome for our communities individually. As the closing question, what, Josh, is one accepted truth of local government that you think is incorrect? I think I think one accepted truth that I think is is flat out myth is the idea that local government or government in general is inefficient and that large government is bad. I mean the reality is is that I think local government in particular is one of the most efficient entities that you can find. The nature of the way that a local government makes its revenue is that it's constantly for facing a scarcity of resource and therefore needs to be innovative and effective with how it deploys its resources. And so, yeah, if I could change people's minds about one thing around local government, it would be that concept. And sort of a little bit supporting that and maybe a bit of a personal pet peeve is is the idea that local government should operate like a business. Local government isn't in the business of turning a profit. It's in the business of delivering to its constituent the services it wants. Now, we can learn a lot from business by how do we do that efficiently and effectively. But in the end, we're a nonprofit entity that's trying to deliver a service. And sometimes the services that are wanted by our constituents are those that absolutely don't make a profit. And that's why the private sector isn't engaged in that space. So one, we are highly effective. I mean, I have six professional staff that do the work that in other communities I've looked at, the the number of staff in an economic health office would be two or three times that. I mean, we do it for less money than some of the other things that the community invests in that are great investments. So I think we're extremely efficient in my own office and across the whole organization with you know our taxpayer dollars. And then while we can learn things from business, I think we can never forget that you know government is a separate and different entity than business. And so it, it at, at some point needs to operate like good government and, and that requires transparency and you know good elected officials providing great oversight and you know opportunities for the citizens to be engaged you know and all the things that make for good government Josh thought this was one of the most fun and informative conversations I've had on City Hall Stories. So really appreciate your time and insight on building more resilient and healthier communities. Absolutely. Uh, Clearly, I enjoy talking about what I do. So always happy to share my perspective. And if you ever need me on to talk about a different topic, I'd be more than happy to. Thanks, Josh. Absolutely. Take care, Jack. It's me again. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed it, Leave a rating on Apple Podcasts and connect with me on LinkedIn. See you soon.